Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Decades ago, I started growing food in my front and backyard, and I realized that my mission in life is to inspire and empower others to grow their own nutrient-dense, healthy, organic food. Because of this, a lot of people have come to me with their gardening questions over the years, and that got me thinking, what if we put together a community that would help budding gardeners blossom? So I finally made the idea a reality with my Urban Farm U member program. Each month, your membership includes three live online events, a monthly class, a chit-chat with an expert, and a monthly coaching session, plus access to the experts on our member page and a significant discount on our signature courses. I'm deeply committed to transforming our global food system, and I do this by empowering you to grow your own food. The Urban Farm Membership Program is a simple way to get going. Please join me in transforming your food system today. To learn more, go to urbanfarmmembership.org or text membership to 33444. That's urbanfarmmembership.org or text membership to 33444. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the Grow Your Own Food Revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have a longtime friend of mine, Brad Lancaster, author of Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and founder of DesertHarvesters.org. Since 1993, Brad has run a successful permaculture education, design, and consultation business focused on integrative, regenerative approaches to landscape design, planning, and living. In the Sonoran Desert, with just 11 inches of rainfall, he and his brother harvest about 100,000 gallons of rainwater a year on an eighth-acre urban lot and adjoining right-of-way. This harvested water is then turned into living air conditioners of food-bearing trees, abundant gardens, and a thriving landscape incorporating wildlife habitat, beauty, medicinal plants, and more. The goal of his book series and overall work is to empower his clients and community to make positive change in their own lives and neighborhoods. 
by harvesting and enhancing free online resources such as water, sun, wind, shade, community, and more. And it's catching on, as evidenced by tens of thousands of practitioners and demand for Brad's work around the world. Welcome to the show today, Brad. Thanks. Great to be here. I'm excited to have you. We have a a bit of a long history, so I'm uh, excited to catch up. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now? Well, I grew up here in Tucson, Arizona, so a dry land community. Uh And um, as I grew up, I saw that our water situation was steadily getting worse and all. And I also found I wasn't uh, as connected to the place as I'd like. I I grew up loving playing in the desert. I grew up in the the suburbs on the outside of town on a one-acre desert lot. And and that was amazing to just be able to run out in the natural environment. But I really didn't know anything about it because my family and myself were not from here. Uh-huh. moved here when I was three, and my parents are all from someplace else. So we had no oral history, no connection to this place beyond my play. And I longed to know more. I longed to know how did people live in this place before all these modern supermarkets and infrastructure. And I just kind of grew this desire, but I, I couldn't get it from my family because they, they didn't know it either. Uh-huh. And as time went on, I became a teenager and then got disillusioned with uh, growing up in the suburbs. And everything seemed to be so far apart. It took oh, so yeah. long to get from point A to point B. Yeah, I just wasn't as stimulated. So um, I think I came to a lot of this as part of you know, reaction of some of that upbringing, but it was also, uh, I came to this work when I finally did start tapping into some of the knowledge, the history, the traditions of this place. When I learned from uh, Autumn, uh, indigenous friends, uh, about some of the wild foods and whatnot, I learned about their water harvesting traditions, um, learned about uh, people doing passive heating and cooling and whatnot, all these great strategies where people just used what was freely at hand Uh and so much of this were things that were all around me but I just I didn't I didn't truly see them I just see the surface I didn't see what was deeper and uh, because I you know I didn't have that that family depth of knowing at this place Mm -hmm. so as I slowly had the opportunity to delve deeper I got more and more excited and took off of this work. So uh, part of that was, let's just talk about water at first. Mm-hmm. I noticed that in the built environment, in the suburbs and even the urban core and whatnot, here in this dry land community where we only get 11 inches of rain a year, everything was designed to get rid of that free high quality <laughs> water, that rainwater, as yeah. quickly as possible. Uh-huh. It would cause flooding downstream, um, it would dehydrate the sites of upstream, and then people would spend all kinds of money putting in more infrastructure to import more water from greater and greater distances away. And it was usually worse water than the the local water. So as my eyes started to open up to the absurdities of all this money and resources we were spending doing things in a way that seemed bass-ackwards, I started to see, well, could we flip it? Could we turn these negatives into positives? Could we turn the problems into solutions? And uh, taking a permaculture course, 
which is a permaculture is a methodology of uh, sustainable design based on natural systems, and also reading about more of the history of the traditional peoples here. I realized that all over the world, in every dry land community, every dry land culture, and even those of wetter cultures that just have a dry season, in every one of these, there is a tradition of harvesting the rainwater. So when the rain falls, instead of draining it off, you capture it, you reinvest it, uh-huh. either in the soil and the root zone of your plant or in tanks or other systems. So you basically make it available long into the dry season. Mm-hmm. And instead of using it once and getting rid of it, you use it many times. You, you use it, then you recycle it again, and you cycle it again. So let's say we use the water in our shower. You used it once, well now let's send it outside to irrigate a tree that shades and cools the house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a whole other use. And then it generates food and fruit. I eat that fruit and then the liquid in the fruit goes through me and then when I have to get rid of that liquid, I can deposit my so-called waste in a compost toilet, recapture those nutrients, recapture the, uh, the moisture and um, I can fully compost it and reinvest that back into the soils to grow some more resources. I just got super excited by how, wow, here's this whole other way of thinking and doing things where instead of making things worse over time, I can really make them better. Uh And I don't need anything fancy to do it. I can just use what's freely right here at hand. Mm -hmm. So uh, once I got exposed to that, I got addicted to it. I kept trying to do more (laughs) and more. Yeah. What was the spark? that kind of pushed you in the direction of seeing reuse pattern, the circular pattern? What, what sparked that for you? Well, it started early for me in my childhood because on weekends, my dad, he loved to salvage things. So we would go to construction sites and we'd pick up all the nails that were dropped at the construction site. We'd get lumber out of the uh, the dumpster and whatnot. And it was fun. It was like an adventure. Uh-huh. I remember as a kid, I was just so bored when we go to the store. Like, let's just go or at least go to you know, get some toys. But if we're not getting toys, let's leave. But when we go to the construction sites and pull the waste out of the site and use it to build forts, and, or my dad would use it to build another room on the house. And uh-huh. It was like, this is sweet. It's like we're getting away with something. <laughs> um, so that was, that was an early start with it. Uh-huh. But it it was that permaculture class that really kind of sparked it into more of a, a life philosophy for me. So, um, because so, so for our listeners that don't know what permaculture is, can you kind of give us a sense of what that is for you? Uh, it's It's just one of many different methodologies that try and push us in a more sustainable or regenerative direction. Mm-hmm. And... It tends to base different design philosophies and strategies on natural systems. So I've been talking a little bit about water. So on this planet, we have a finite amount of fresh water. Mm-hmm. Less than 1% of all the water on this planet is fresh water, water we can drink. Wow. And only a fraction of that is available. Uh-huh. Yet th- this planet, because the other frozen ice caps are well below the soil surface as groundwater, uh-huh. but the uh, but yet this planet never runs out of fresh water. So why is that? It's because this planet 
its basic core of the life on this planet is the hydrological cycle. Mm -hmm. um, the, the way the planet and all its life forms use the water and cycle it again and again and again in myriad ways. So while there's a finite amount of water, there's an infinite amount of use, uses and reuses. Mm -hmm. And that's what we need to mimic. But basically, uh, in the, the, built -in, the typical built environment in, uh, in the United States and elsewhere, that is not it at all. We use water once and we get rid of it. So it's a very wasteful way of doing things. So I'm trying to mimic what I see a much more resilient uh, natural system. Mm -hmm. You keep using the word resilient. Can you explain what that means? All right. Well, resilient just means let's say um, let's say there's some disturbance or something in the system, like maybe we get record heat or record cold, or maybe we have a collapse temporarily or whatnot in the economy or there's some family catastrophe happens, well, uh, what's going to happen to us and our system? Um, you can kind of think of, I'll have in my right hand a resilient system, and in my left hand a non-resilient one. Uh -huh. So in my right hand I, ha I have a tennis ball, and in my left hand I have a tomato. Uh -huh. So when I throw the tennis ball up in the air, it bounces bounces back. Maybe not as high as it did initially, right. but it bounces back, okay? Whereas uh, when I throw up the tomato, when it falls, it just splats, collapses. And uh, so we want a system that's got um, more beneficial redundancy in the system, uh -huh. so it can more readily bounce back. So instead of relying on just one water source, a typical you know, family, household, right? Their only water source is the water coming from the city line. But what if, some, what if the pipe breaks? What if ha something happens to the city line? What if something happens to the power system that powers the city pumps that pressurize the water? Well, then you're out. You're, you don't have nothing else to fall back on. Well, other than you know, hop in the car and try and buy some bottled water at the market. But if there's been a rush on that, you don't have it. So how can we design into our systems, our lifestyles, beneficial redundancy where mm -hmm. we have many backup systems. So here at our house, my primary source of water is, is rainwater, the water coming off my, my roof that I collect in a tank and, and in the soil. Uh -huh. So if the city system goes down, no problem. I've got this whole system. But let's say my, my rainwater system goes down. Okay, well then my backup is the, uh, the city rainwater system, uh, right. sorry, the city uh, municipal water system. Uh -huh. And let's say both that system and my rainwater system are really low, hardly working. Well, I still am recycling, reusing whatever water I already have from my tank or the city system. So I need far less. Right. And uh, the water I've stored um, weeks or months ago in my soil, um, that's now generating a food crop. So I can at least access some of that moisture in the food I need. Right. Wow. That's a beautiful system you've got set up there. Well, it's a fun system, I and mean, it's just a lot more exciting. You know? And yeah. we've had many instances here in the neighborhood where the water has been shut off because they've been working on the water mains or whatnot, and there's an unexpected complication. Everything goes down uh, on the block, uh -huh. and yet 
we we've still got water. Same things happen with power. We have brownouts, but we you know we've got a solar power system. And when all the other houses have gone black, you know we turn on all the lights in the home and the stereo and everything, and just show everyone, hey man, come on over, it's party. <laughs> we we still got power. Nice. Uh, we've got a backup system. Yeah, nice. So. I've been to your place in Tucson, and, and I, I'd like you to touch on your uh, laundry to landscape system and how you've plugged that into the neighborhood, if you don't mind. Yeah. So there's a lot of times when people hear the term laundry to landscape, they think uh, of um, a system that Art Ludwig designed, a great system, where you, you use the pump of your washing machine to pump gray water out into the landscape and that system works great but uh we didn't we didn't want to use that exact system so we have a a different laundry landscape system where it's we don't run water through a pressurized line instead uh the pump of the washing machine when it kicks out its drain water Uh it goes into uh, a rigid pipe keeping a two percent float so we put our washing machine um out in a little washing machine shed on the high part of the yard so we can then freely irrigate all trees downstream or below downslope of that washing machine with the the once used wash water from the washing machine. Mm -hmm. Um, So there next to the washing machine you'll see four pipes and each pipe is labeled with the tree that we direct the water to. Nice. So we take, we do a load of laundry. Once we load the washing machine with the, the clothes, we then take the drain hose that's behind the washing machine, and we stick it in a different pipe. Mm-hmm. We're always we're always moving the drain hose to a different pipe with every load of wash. And this way, each pipe will then direct water to a different tree in the landscape. Nice. This way, we ensure the gray water is distributed to multiple points, not concentrated in just one area, uh-huh. and keeps everything really balanced and the wealth of the water and this way I don't feel guilty or unmotivated to do laundry instead I feel <laughs> great about it and, and more motivated because not only do I want clean clothes but I'm like hey at the same time I'm going to irrigate my landscape for free yeah so now you you plugged that into the neighborhood right well we had when we first put in the system uh-huh. gray water was uh, a real unknown thing at the time. So we invited a bunch of our neighbors who were renting and did not have washing machines at their rental unit. We said, yeah, come on over to our place and do your laundry here. We showed them how to use it. We said, yeah, you know, we'll be even cheaper than the laundromat. Instead of 75 cents to a dollar a load, we'll just be 50 cents a load. Uh-huh. So, and we said, but you got to use the right soaps. And on the gray water harvesting page of my website, harvestingrainwater.com I tell you what are the good soaps for using if you're going to redirect this gray water to your landscape. You don't want to use bleach which could kill your plant. Oh yeah. Chlorinated bleach. You don't want to use that. And uh, you don't want to use powdered detergents because they're full of salt that hurts the plant. So use liquid detergents and and I give more advice on on that webpage. But it's great. We have seven households doing their laundry over here. Nice. And so they were helping really boost the production of our landscape. And they no longer had to commute out of the neighborhood to do their laundry. They could just stick here in the neighborhood and do it. Yeah. That was all great. And we got to know them better, built community, and it exposed them 
to a different way of doing things. Yeah. And a number of them have since bought properties in the neighborhood and implemented the same uh, type of system. Nice. So it's really spread that way. Yeah. Right? It's exposing people to what's possible. Education. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. And here, here's another thing that, well, I'm, you know, maybe I'm jumping the gun here on, on your little break, but, you know, I wanted to share some of what we learned from uh, some, some mistakes we made. Please. So this gray water system, it works great, and so do our rainwater harvesting system, where we direct roof runoff uh, either to well-mulched planted basins in the landscape or to a rainwater tank that overflows into those basins and from which we can uh, you know, turn on a valve and send water from the tank with, via a hose our landscape plantings and right. all that's worked fantastic but what we found is in some instances we miscalculated how much water we really had available in the rain and when this is this happened when i was first learning how to do these calculations or in the case of the gray water system uh-huh. we initially had seven other households using our washing machine but now no more. Now it's just us. Right. So the amount of available water was greatly reduced. And we had planted some very water needy plants mm. initially. Uh-huh. Uh, like exotic fruit trees. And we kind of set a goal for ourselves here. We wanted to really push the envelope in our learning, our practices, and try and advocate a different model that was really pushing the envelope on what typically happens. So we we only wanted to irrigate our landscape with free on-site water. That's the rainwater, street runoff, gray water from our household drain. Uh-huh. We've already paid for the water to use in the shower. It's going down the drain. Let's capture it once more. But we did not want to use any virgin drinking water. So no water just straight from the hose unused on the landscape. Oh, nice. Um, because that, that we considered an imported water. Uh-huh. We were having to import it from the city. So as this was our goal, we would not allow ourselves to use the city water, virgin city water, when the dry season kicked in. Uh-huh. A lot of these real water-needy, uh, exotic food-producing crops suffered, and, and a couple of them died out. And so... and. The other thing that was hitting at the same time is we really hit the drought here and all. And I noticed trees were dying all around the community, in, both in the built environment and out in the desert. And that was a little depressing at first. And then I just realized, well, wait a minute, this is such a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. So instead of creating a landscape where we are trying to modify the climate to suit the crop. Right. And what I mean by that, let's by planting. We had planted something real water neat, so we were having to generate the potential of bringing in ever more water right. to support that crop. Okay, but the other way of thinking about it is how can we in, uh, instead select a crop that is perfectly adapted to the existing climate, mm. and so. We looked to, all right, well, here in the Sonoran Desert, there's over 400 native food-bearing plants. Wow. I did, I did they, to, they, 
I've lived here 47 years and did not know that. Uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, well, it took me a long time to figure that out. Yeah. I grew up here, but again, my family didn't have the oral history that knew that. Yeah. So we started to look into the ethnobotanical record and, and talk to indigenous friends that, that knew about all this. And we also realized, wow, well, coupled with simple passive water harvesting, again, where we just direct patio runoff, roof runoff, or street runoff to adjoining sunken mulch basins, these food-bearing desert plants, they won't just survive, they will thrive. Because now they're getting far more water than they were accustomed to, not because any more rain was falling from the sky, but just because we had taken the rain that fell from the sky on them and kept it there. We didn't allow it to run off because we did not plant on these mound-like shapes that drain water away. Then we planted next to or beside basin shapes to hold the water. And then we also directed the water from the adjoining hardscape, be it a roof or patio or road. So in many instances, we tripled or quadrupled the available rainfall for this plant. Oh, nice. And produced like crazy. Yeah. So when my exotic fruit trees, some of my exotic fruit trees died out, I just realized, oh, this is a fantastic opportunity to select better adapted plants for our unique site condition. And it's been incredible because uh, we we found that uh, it's so easy to grow a crop and there's so little care because these plants have literally evolved over millennia to be here and to produce here. And we've also found it's connected us more to the cultures of this place and the wildlife because it doesn't these plants don't just produce food for us but also habitat for the wildlife oh yeah of course so this worked great and uh we wanted to take this further you know show other people and we had been organizing an annual tree planting project in my neighborhood Uh and this started in 1996 so for over 20 years um well for i guess yeah for 20 years Uh um, now it's 2016 20 years we've been planting native food bearing uh, plant trees uh-huh. within water harvesting earthworks along our neighborhood streets. And this is um, generated, it's totally converted the neighborhood. Because when we started, most of the streetscapes, the street sides, were just bare dirt uh-huh. or just bare gravel. It was oh, a yeah. hot, sterile solar oven experience. And our streets would flood. Um, you didn't want to be out and about where you might see someone and talk to them. So by planting these trees, we started to grow shelter so it would actually be comfortable to be outside. Uh And then we cut the street curbs to direct street runoff to street side basins. So this way the street would be the water source for the street trees, which would grow to shade and cool the street. Mm -hmm. And that just worked fantastically. And we made sure we only selected trees that were native to this area and produce food, medicine, and other um, products. And when we started all this work, the only wildlife we seemed to have in the neighborhood were exotic pigeons. But now <laughs> we've got over, over two dozen native bird species that have returned to their food and nesting habitat that we've regrown. Yeah. And we also are now able to walk through 
these wild food orchards so we can harvest carob-like mesquite pods that are naturally sweet. We can grind up into a wonderful flour that sells for $14 a pound. We can harvest the green seeds of the desert ironwood tree or its mature seeds once brown. And so we can enjoy it in the green stage as edamame or enjoy it like peanuts when it's brown. Mm -hmm. We've got the Palo Verde trees where we can harvest the edible flowers and the, uh, the sweet pea-like seeds when they're green or once they're brown and mature, we can grind them up into a cornmeal-like flavored flour. Wow. We've planted a lot of the native cactus for their edible fruit, their edible pads, which we can cut up and cook and eat like vegetables. And so the amazing thing is we, we've shifted in our own yard and along our streets with our neighbors. We've created a new urban agricultural system that is not extractive in nature, uh-huh. but instead gives back more than it takes. So the typical agriculture of today in the Western industrialized world uh-huh. is very extractive. Right. Where you are pumping water from deep groundwater or from somewhere else to irrigate your crops. Mm-hmm. And you're bringing in fertility from somewhere else to fertilize your crops. And then you export it all uh, too much further away. So we instead are growing the food where we live, work, and play. We don't have to import it from somewhere else. And we're using the free on-site water, the rainwater, storm water, gray water, to irrigate those plants for free. And as a result, instead of depleting the groundwater table, we're actually investing into it and helping bring the water table back up while also reducing flooding downstream. We are not mining nutrients from elsewhere to fertilize our plants. Instead, we plant fertilizer in the form of nitrogen-fixing plants. Uh We attract birds and their manure to fertilize things (laughs) for us free of charge. And when we have leaf drop, um, we don't rake up the leaves and throw them away. Leaves are called leaves because you're supposed to leave them. We just let them accumulate in the water harvesting basin beside the plant. So all that biomass, all those nutrients go back into the soil. And when we prune the trees, we cut up the prunings and put those cut up prunings back That's into beautiful. the basin. So we, yeah. we cycle the nutrients. We cycle the biomass. We don't create a waste stream. We create a resource cycling and recycling. And uh, this was working great, and but we found that like us, when we started, many of our neighbors didn't know how to use these wild foods because they're not part of our daily practice. Right. So we realized we had to create these events where people could come out and try foods um, prepared with these wild food ingredients, and they could see how delicious it was. <laughs> plugging we in needed the, to create plugging yeah, in the community plug- again. Exactly, plugging into the community, and we needed to create events that also showed people how you harvest, how you process it all, and how you plant it so we grow ever more. And so in the early days, we would have these celebrations where people could bring their mesquite pods to a community mill that we would bring to different neighborhoods. And on this uh, particular day of the year, they could grind up their pods in a naturally sweet edible flower. 
Nice. And so it was like a community mill. Uh-huh. And then we'd have mesquite pancakes with prickly pear syrup. So people could taste how good it was. Oh, and, nice. And that was great, but we realized, you know, this is crazy that we're having to cook all these pancakes for everyone. And, <laughs> and there's so many more amazing foods you can make with this wild food flour. So we decided to turn it into a big bake sale event where we got as many people as possible. Oh, beautiful. Um, submitting recipes and foods with yeah. this. So. Instead of just pancakes, we now had Indian naan bread with prickly pear chutney. We had dog biscuits made out of mesquite. We had mesquite beer and uh, mesquite atole. We had mesquite baklava and uh, mesquite pizza crust and pies and so much more. It was just mind-blowing. And it was this wonderful fusion where we just invited everyone to submit their favorite recipe or dish, just as long as they incorporated a wild food uniquely of this place. So it became this great bridge which enabled people to bridge their ethnic and cultural background, wherever they came from, with what was truly unique and of this place, just the wild foods you only find here. And by fusing the two, whole new foods were generated and this incredible communication through the tasting, like, and some people at the events where you know, English wasn't their first language and they didn't feel comfortable speaking in English, but they saw how excited and happy people were eating yeah. foods they had brought. Nice. And, uh, and so they would you know, kind of point and gesticulate, like, hey, you know that thing you're eating right now that you're, you're loving? I made that. <laughs> and the people eating it, through their facial expression and just going, oh my God, this is so incredibly good. Thank you. Yeah. It's just wonderful how all that happened. Yeah. And so we created this group called Desert Harvesters Mm -hmm. that uh, is all about uh, educating the public on these unique wild foods of this place, how you plant them to grow more, how you harvest them and process them for the highest quality, most delicious, Mm. safest harvest. Yeah, and then in this community building, public celebratory events, how do you celebrate it all? How do you feast on it all? How do you generate more will, excitement uh, around all of this, and share the learning, share the experimentation? And it's been wonderful, so great that we now um, you know, we're always trying to work ourselves out of a job. <laughs> we we realize you know people shouldn't have to wait one day of the year, you know, for a big celebratory event right. to experience all this. So now we've been coordinating other events with other organizations, like local restaurants and brewers oh, yeah. and local farmers markets, where we are consulting with and working with these different restaurants and whatnot and showing them how they can source uh, and plant in their own sites and then harvest and use the best tasting wild food ingredients in a way that gives them a, an amazing product. Yeah. And then people that go for that product, like we worked with XO Roast Company to up the, uh, the quality of their mesquite cold brewed coffee. And it just turned out incredible. <laughs> so, um, and it's, it's an amazing seller for them. So any time of the season when they've got these, their mesquite cold brew on, People can go into their establishment or the other establishment that they sell their product to and enjoy 
a coffee drink that's been sweetened just with local mesquite syrup. Um, or we work with a local brewer to uh, bring uh, mesquite and desert lavender, you know, wild herbs such as that, um, and other wild ingredients into their brews, Iron John Brewing. And they, they have got incredible products. We've worked, worked with local restaurants to um, bring wild foods into their daily menu offerings, both in terms of their drinks and their, right. their foods. So what we're really trying to bring back a culture of planting, harvesting, enjoying and celebrating foods uniquely of this place that are grown in a way that doesn't extract the water resources, extract the fertility from the system that actually helps grow and generate a more resilient water system, mm-hmm. higher fertility. Um, and yeah, it's been, it's been going great. We've been doing this for 14 years now. We've been doing Desert Harvesters. For uh-huh. 20 years, we've been planting these edible food wow. trees in the neighborhood. And for the same 20 years, I've been practicing and teaching and uh, promoting the harvest of uh, our free on-site waters, our rainwater, and so on. Well, just a crazy statistic is, you know, in Tucson, we only get 11 inches of rain a year. And yet, with our um, you know, over half a million uh, residents, more rain falls on Tucson in a year of, of normal rainfall uh-huh. than the entire, and then all the, the community citizens consume of municipal water in a year. Wow. So there's, we have you know, all that we need. We just need to better manage it, yeah. better steward it and better relate to it. Well, that's what you talk about in your books, right? Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands, Volume 1 and Volume 2. Can you tell us just a little bit about them? Yeah, so these books are just, I want to show people all kinds of different ways that they can very easily harvest the the free raining falling from the sky and either directly in the landscape or running off the roof, how they can capture runoff from the the street, um, their driveway, their patio how they can, instead of getting you know, rid of this free gift, uh-huh. how can they reuse it um, in a way that creates a very sustainable or regenerative oasis where they live, work, and play. Mm-hmm. Where a one that is so imbalanced that they can just leave on vacation, nobody has to take care of it or anything, just continues to thrive without them. And yeah, the, these books they give you many different strategies on how to do this to create um, these, these lush landscapes using free on-site waters. But it also gives you many case studies of different people and different scenarios showing how they did it. So it gives you ideas on many of your different options. And coupled with that, I show how can we harvest this water in a way that grows vegetation placed the ideal spot so we can also freely heat and cool our homes with oh, our landscape. Yeah. yeah. And if people want to just look at the building, I show, well, how can we um, place and size our windows for maximum winter mm-hmm. heating for free from the winter sun and at the same time give us free summer shading and cooling and integrate them all together so that 
just by planting a tree in the right way, you reduce your water bill, you reduce flooding, you reduce your power bill, your energy bill, uh -huh. you reduce your food bill, <laughs> and you, you end up being a lot more happy. Yeah. Because you, through the planting of that tree and the ways I advocate, you create a much more comfortable environment that generates food, it creates a spot that's wonderful to play or hang out under, you know, adding more to the happiness side of things. And it could be on the west side of your house to help shade and cool you from the hot afternoon sun, but yet let in all the free light and heat and winter coming yeah. from the south. Um, so you get free heating when you need it, but none, no heating when you don't need it. Right. And it's all just simple stuff. So all the books lay out all kinds of ways to do this. And, and they've been great. They're bestsellers. They've got won all kinds of awards. They're amazing and, books, uh, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, so, And I've come out with a second edition of the first book with 100 pages of new information, over 120 new images, wow. because I'm continuing to learn as I go on as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so that second edition came out in 2013 and um, continues to do great. Cool. So one of the things that I notice about our conversation today is the holistic nature of how you manage everything. You're not just looking at one item in a landscape. You're looking at the whole landscape. Can you say a little bit more about that? Just a little bit. Because I, I, I find it really a, a really valuable place to look. Well, it's just more fun. You know, like, you know, so often... Uh see things done in a way like, um, well, so often the way people will build a house without any awareness of how it could be beneficially oriented to the seasonally changing sun paths. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, so in the winter months, the sun here in the northern hemisphere is always in the southern part of the sky. Yeah. So if that's the case, wouldn't you want more windows on the south side of your house to get that free heat and light in winter? Oh, yeah. And then in the summer, the sun is rising in the northeast. It's almost directly overhead at noon, and then it sets in the northwest. Mm -hmm. So we, we really want to maximize our free shading and cooling on the east and west sides of our house for those hot months. Yeah. And just simple considerations like that can dramatically reduce one's heating cooling bills. And so I just find having this holistic approach by just not just getting stuck of the one thing I'm looking at now. Like let's say I want to cool my house. It's uh -huh. hot in summer. I want to cool it. So instead of just doing the so-called easy route and buying an air conditioner which is then going to increase my utility consumption and mm -hmm. all. Well, are there, is that the only way I can cool my house? Or could I also do it by maybe putting an exterior shade on my west-facing window. Yeah. Maybe also planting a, a tree on the <laughs> west side of the house for always, more shade. Yep, always love that. Maybe, yeah. Maybe I want to put a, a covered porch on the west side, so I'm getting even more shade still, and I can direct that runoff off the porch roof to that tree on the west side I planted. And maybe I can select a tree that produces food and wildlife habitat, too. So the food's right outside my door, and I can view, I have a wonderful view of all of these 
native songbirds coming to visit and lure me out onto the porch. <laughs> um, Perfect. So I just find the holistic approach, it's just a practice of trying to see what is the potential all around me and how can I tap that potential instead of just getting stuck on a problem. Yeah. So how could I solve a problem, like my house being too hot, while at the same time realizing this otherwise unlooked at potential? So how can I make my house cooler, but also my house more inviting at the same time with the same strategy? Uh-huh. My, and not just inviting, but more joyous through the enhanced aesthetic experience, the beauty, this wildlife on the track. The climbing tree <laughs> lures me outside and gets me to exercise yeah. more. So now my health improves, it improves my mood even more. So it's Beautiful. that kind of thing. Yeah. So I am going to shift on you a little bit and I have a couple questions for you. I would like to know what you consider your biggest success. I think my biggest success has actually been um, the water harvesting books and mm-hmm. all the trainings I've done around them and that other people are doing using those books. Yeah. Because when uh, 10 years ago when I came out with my first book and you'd mentioned water harvesting or rainwater harvesting, you just get blank stares uh-huh. in the U.S. People yeah. didn't know what I was talking about. And now, most people I run into, they at least they know what it is. Yeah. They, they have a general concept of it, whether or not they're practicing. And, uh, and tens of thousands of people just in my community are practicing it, whereas before they were not. Yeah. It used to be illegal in many communities, but mm-hmm. now it's legal. It's mm-hmm. even incentivized or even mandated. In just 10 years, 180-degree shift. For example, we cut the street curbs of our neighborhood street here to direct street runoff into street side basins that sustain the street side trees. And when we first did that, it was illegal. We did it on a Sunday morning when no one was watching. <laughs> but it, it's proved so successful. Right. It's helped change policy. But the books also did in a huge way because people could read the books in the privacy of their own home, not being challenged by anyone publicly or whatnot. And they could read all the case studies, they could see how it's all done. And the book's written in a way that they could easily do it themselves, and, and so many have, that it's shifting culture, it's shifting practice. Uh-huh. And it's been become a guidebook for a lot of these shifts. So to see how many people are practicing water harvesting now compared to 10 years ago when I didn't even know <laughs> it was a thing. Yeah, it was a thing, exactly. It's been uh, phenomenal. And it's, it's not just here in the Southwest. It's Everywhere. Throughout the United States yeah. and the world. And the, the books are sold internationally. And Beautiful. I've been teaching in, uh, in Africa and Europe and Asia and Mexico and as well um, because the demand just keeps growing because this works so well and uh, it's so effective so the uh, the books went so much further than I ever could with my teaching and my workshops because that's just me and it goes so much further than even the others that are just because anyone can pick up the book it's currently translated in Arabic it's 
or in uh, contractual uh, conversations to get into um, uh, Turkish and wow. also Spanish. Wow. So, cool. Yeah. So what drives you? Uh, what drives me is just um, wanting to yeah, uh, leave the place better off than I found it mm-hmm. and to be part of the solution rather than the problem. And the other thing that you know, drives me is just the, the pure joy and excitement that comes out from striving for just that and achieving it. Yeah. And then, you know, wanting to, wanting to share, to say, hey, folks, you know, I experienced <laughs> this. It was so great. Check it out. If you, if you like it, do likewise. And you know, here's some simple ways how. And, uh, yeah, people have really taken off with it. Beautiful. So I'm all about education, and I have to know, is there one book for you that has been a spark? Yeah, let's see. There's been, there's been many books. And just for the heck of it, I'm going to share a children's book. And it's called The Big Orange Splot. <laughs> the Big Orange and Splot? The Big Orange Splot. And what I love about that book is the story where everyone lives on a street where everyone's houses look exactly the same. Uh-huh. And then one night, a stork flies over one gentleman's house, and the stork is carrying a can of orange paint. Uh-huh. And nobody knows why, but for some reason, the stork drops the can of red paint and creates a big orange spot on the guy's roof at the top. When everyone comes out in the morning, they're like, oh, we gotta, you got to change that. you got to paint your house back so it all looks the same. And he thought about it, and he was going to do it, but then he ends up coming back from the hardware store, and he changes everything. He turns his house into his dream, which was this crazy place with two palm trees, a crocodile, a hammock where he can hang out and drink lemonade and a table where he can serve it to all his guests. He puts a clock tower on top of his roof and he paints a mermaid and a lion and all this stuff. Uh-huh. And everyone freaks out. Like, dude, what is all this? And he said, well, this is my dream. This is me. This is who I want to be. This is who I want to share. And one by one, each neighbor comes to talk to him to try and convince him to change the house back so it looks the same as everyone else's. Mm-hmm. But as they drink lemonade with him under the tree and they share stories and whatnot, everyone gets inspired and they go home <laughs> and convert their home into mm-hmm. their dreams, be it a hot air balloon, a mausoleum, a castle, a pyramid, whatever it is. And uh, so by the end of the book, everyone's happy. Everyone is truly living their dream. Mm-hmm. And it's the most diverse whimsical street of homes you've ever seen yeah beautiful so what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners well my final piece of advice might be linked to that children's book is where do you have passion in the world mm-hmm. and and it's if passion's too strong a word you know what what draws you? What gives you life or energy? And is there a way you could tap that that doesn't just serve you, but also serves 
your community and also serves the world. So how can you tap your passion or your excitement, generate more of it in a way that doesn't extract from the quality of anyone else's life, mm -hmm. but instead lifts their life as it lifts yours? And yeah, I, you know, that bit of advice is a big one, and I think it poses some questions. Mm -hmm. But it's not advice that's a set recipe. It's <laughs> advice that's uniquely applicable yeah. to what's unique about everyone listening. And they have to figure that out. And everyone can do it. And so partly how I've done it has been to practice this different way of managing water and fertility and growing food and other on-site resources mm -hmm. and then the books that have come from that and the nonprofit I helped create and the events that we do but uh, it could be anything and it doesn't have to have anything plant related or water related if that's not where your passion is right. where is your passion go with that well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Brad. It's been a treat to catch up with you. Well, thanks so much to you, too, for the opportunity. And I just want to share, too, if, if folks are interested in anything that's talked about today, uh -huh. um, I cannot recommend my books enough. So those books are Rainwater Harvesting for Dry Lands and Beyond. And it, it'll serve you if you're in a dry climate or even a wet climate, yeah. as long as you got a dry season. And uh, also, uh, suggest people check out my website. Yes, please. HarvestingRainwater.com. And the other website is DesertHarvesters.org. Fantastic. We'll have all of those on the show notes page. Sure. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Decades ago, I started growing food in my front and backyard, and I realized that my mission in life is to inspire and empower others to grow their own nutrient-dense, healthy, organic food. Because of this, a lot of people have come to me with their gardening questions over the years, and that got me thinking, what if we put together a community that would help budding gardeners blossom? So I finally made the idea a reality with my Urban Farm U member program. Each month, your membership includes three live online events, a monthly class, a chit-chat with an expert, and a monthly coaching session, plus access to the experts on our member page and a significant discount on our signature courses. I'm deeply committed to transforming our global food system, and I do this by empowering you to grow your own food. The Urban Farm Membership Program is a simple way to get going. Please join me in transforming your food system today. To learn more, go to urbanfarmmembership.org or text MEMBERSHIP to 33444. That's urbanfarmmembership.org or text MEMBERSHIP to 33444. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. 
Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.